trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you're into free thinking, personal freedom, wrong think, you have found the right place. I'm joined today by my friend Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Hi, Eric. How are you? Hey, Brian. I'm good. I'm standing in front of my propane heater doing the Davos shuffle. How about you? (laughs) Well, uh, I'm getting ready to cook my breakfast on a gas stove and uh, reveling in every moment of it. Can you imagine? uh, Probably in the not-too-distant future, they'll have the gas stove police uh, decked out in body armor uh, with M16s kicking down people's doors to take away their uh, their climate changing stoves and heaters. You know that that just as an aside, that was such a weird thing. You know the thing is floated. Certain news media outlets pick it up, and when people push back and say, yeah. "No freaking way, are you going to come and take my gas stove?" Suddenly, the the buzz among the um, legacy media. Can you believe these conservative idiots actually believe somebody's going to come take their stove? And it's like. I don't know what to say. Well, they actually are taking them, though. I mean, it's not. It, it's, it's beyond that already. In, in states like California, and I think there are a number of others, they've banned new construction homes from um, installing gas cooktops, for example. Wow. And uh, that, that, yeah, that, so that, that trend is spreading. And the reason for it is simply that it's out of the control grid. Now, they want us all on electricity, you know, assuming it's available, so that they can control us utterly. You know, one source of energy centralized and completely under their control Whereas if you have gas or propane, that's much more under your control. Here, here. In fact, one of the best memes I have seen that has come out of this is a uh, wood cooktop stove and the words become ungovernable. I was like, yes, (laughs) that's exactly it. Yeah. You know, a lot of people in my neck have that. In fact, one of our neighbors has one of those uh, and they're beautiful. The old ceramic topped uh, wood fired stoves that people used to have, you know, back in the 30s and the 40s and, and, and beyond that. Um, and they're really neat, you know, and they're immensely functional, obviously. You know, if you have any trees in the backyard, you're never going to want for um, a, a means of cooking your supper. Yep, and I'm I'm with you. The, the, in fact, the, the closer I look at uh, the Davos crowd, among others, the more I'm convinced, no, these people want absolute control of every aspect of our lives. And if you are 100% dependent upon the power grid to power your car, which only has a limited, you know, uh, range of, of uh, you know, ability to travel, uh, to power your home and everything else, you are entirely at their mercy. That's right. What they want is to recreate the top-down hierarchy of the Middle Ages, uh, in which the Lord and the priest class controlled everything, and everybody else was completely poor and utterly under their control. And they're using this secular religion that they propagated of the climate change. You know, that's the that's the mantra. That is that is the nostrum that they're going to use. And they've got their their high priests propagating this new religion to try to get people to just sort of bow their heads and shuffle before the great God and put up with all of this. Well, you know, it was interesting. Uh, the The meeting uh, kicked off this week in Davos, and I've seen a couple of different reports. I haven't seen anything that would would disconfirm this, but. Uh, it sounds like uh, Bill Gates, George Soros, and Klaus Schwab all suddenly had other things to do and declined being there. And I, I had to wonder if, if uh, the talk about, you know, one well-placed missile, I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> if they got nervous or something. Yeah, or they decided to just meet in one of their respective basements. You know, it doesn't matter to me really where they meet. 
where they meet. The fact is they're still meeting and talking, and they have the mechanisms and the money to uh, foist their agenda down our throats. You know, Gates, they put these people forward as philanthropists. No, what they are is obscenely wealthy, and they have the money to control and manipulate things like the media uh, so as to further what their agenda is. That's what this is all about. It's what it's always been about. It's about these so-called elites, and they're only elite because they have lots of money, uh, controlling the rest of us. It's as simple as that, and it's as ancient uh, as human history. Well, and I think it's telling, too, that uh, the director of the FBI was among those invited. I don't know if he's there, but um, he was definitely invited, as were a number of different congressmen and congresswomen. Women. I mean, it's it's a it's a cult, I think, based on, on what I've seen, but I've also heard it described as a, a uh, how did they put it, a grift? No, a cult wrapped in a grift, <laughs> wrapped in an enigma. Yeah, and the, the point with regard to the FBI is particularly telling because these, after all, were supposed to have been simply law enforcement agencies, not political things. And, of course, they become political, and the FBI is now out, you know, out of the closet and open about its collusion, just the right word, uh, with these elite rich people to further their agenda. There's no shame. There's, there's, no, uh, there's no being taken aback by the Twitter revelations of how the FBI colluded with Twitter and their social medias to uh, to marginalize anybody who might present, you know, a fact contrary to the narrative. And this stuff ought to be really alarming to people. I think it is alarming. I think these people are worried, most of all, that they're beginning to lose control of the narrative. And we'll see what happens as a result of that. You know, that's the thing that concerns me is if, if the Davos crowd and, and their puppets in various positions of government at all levels – if they really do think, hey, we're losing it, people are doubting us, people are starting to turn their backs on us, it makes me wonder what they're going to pull out of their hats to bring us all together under the guise of another crisis. <laughs> me too, and I think one of the things that's a possibility is that they're about ready to get rid of, guess who, the Biden thing. Yeah. Uh, have you, yeah, you know, this, this, it's not just the fact that they have revealed uh, the, the presence of these uh, this documents in his, his Delaware house. It's the way it's being portrayed in the media, the same legacy media that was all over Trump about everything. Not that I'm defending Trump, but the point is uh, when the attack dogs are pointed in a certain direction, you can tell that something's afoot. And it may be that this is the prelude to dumping uh, senile old Joe and perhaps uh, then, you know, Harris is the president. And then perhaps Kamala Harris decides to appoint Gavin Newsom as the vice president preparatory to 2024. Boy, wouldn't that be something? You know, yeah. our very own, and, our very uh, own Justin Trudeau. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't think, I think they're in a pickle. Let's put it that way. What are they going to do? They've got this, this, uh, this compromised, addled, senile, 80-something-year-old guy uh, who they need to get rid of. They've got a real problem just in terms of appearances. So how to do that? This may be the means by which they're going to do that. Well, it's... It's interesting, too, that even at the state level now, you're starting to see some some pushback. Uh, for instance, I know Illinois and Oregon both have passed some pretty severe gun control measures. And uh, in Illinois, you've got at least six dozen sheriffs who are saying, I'm not going to enforce this latest. Yeah. I think it's a magazine ban or maybe it's an all, all, all an outright assault weapons ban. Um, Oregon, same thing. A judge says, you know, this is not constitutional. Mm-hmm. It, there's pushback coming, but it's coming from the state level or often the county level rather than, uh, you know, at the federal level. Well, you know, it was the same thing 200 and however many years ago. Uh, it was also something that began at kind of the local level when there was pushback. And speaking of pushback, have you been following what's been going on in Wyoming? 
Actually, I haven't. Well, there is a bill that's been put forward to ban the sale of EVs in that state uh, beginning in 2035. Not that it's necessarily going to go anywhere, but the fact that such a bill has been put forward is remarkable to me because it, it tells me that uh, that people are beginning to realize and understand what this whole electrification thing is all about. And some people are finally deciding to wheel about and do something about it. Wow, the cowboy state stepping yeah. up. That's Well, it's encouraging to see that because it seems like a lot of other states, particularly, you know, some of the Blue Havens have uh, have really, I mean, California has, has simply said, no, there will be no more internal combustion engine vehicles sold in this state. Sure. And I think they're, they're thinking within the next 10, 12 years. Oh, yeah, even before that. I think it's the, the, the most, well, the, the, the ban that takes effect the soonest, I think, is 2030. And there's several that take effect in 2035. Wow. And as a practical matter, it takes effect before that. Because, you know, when you announce that you can't, sell something by a certain date, the manufacturer of that thing is going to stop selling them before then, because what's the point? Why would you continue to invest in the manufacture uh, of a product that you know you're ultimately not going to be able to recoup your investment on? That's why, for example, um, Chrysler and Dodge are giving up on the Hemi-powered vehicles that, that have been so successful for so long, because they know that in the near-term future, they're simply not going to be able to sell them. So rather than update them and come out with a new body and a new this and a new that, they're just giving up on it and going with these electrified vehicles. Man, I just don't see how it's sustainable in the, in the long run. Bro, from the standpoint of, you know, getting the necessary uh, rare earth minerals to make the batteries and so forth, it just seems like it's it's artificially expensive. It's uh, prohibitive to, to people who, who actually do want to travel. You know, you can't take a cross-country trip unless you do some very serious planning. Um, I don't know. I, I guess uh, short that's of being forced feature, into that's it. That's a bug. Right. That's not a feature. It's a bug. It's deliberate. It's purposeful. You know, you could say perhaps 15 years ago uh, that, well, they're going to sort this out and that really, you know, this is a, a better way forward. Electric vehicles are going to reduce the cost of owning a vehicle uh, by making it less expensive to drive. And then the batteries are going to uh, eventually uh, cost less. So the vehicle itself will cost less and more people will be able to drive and so on and so forth. We know that's not true. Uh, we know that batteries have gotten more expensive. EVs are getting more expensive. Um, electricity has gotten more expensive. So this is not about making uh, driving easier, more accessible for more people. It's about restricting driving by making driving more expensive and less practical. Ah, what a brave new world we have to look forward to. We've got some other fun stuff to discuss. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. If you want to check out his website, there's a link in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll take a very quick break and be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, I got to tell you, you wrote an article this last week that uh, just really hit me. And it was about uh, corporate shills. And, and a term, I think, <laughs> yeah. that you coined mercenaryism. Talk to me about uh, what, yeah. what sparked the the idea for this uh, this column. Well, I was uh, taking a trip from my place down to the gym to work out, and that's about 25, 30 miles away. And I often like to listen to talk radio, specifically uh, Patriot 125 on Sirius XM. And as is often the case, there was nothing to listen to for the duration of the drive other than one product pitch after the next. And... You know, I understand as a member of the media, and you understand this too, that we have to make a living, but these guys 
seem interested in just making a killing. All they want to do is hawk products, and it really is frustrating because not that I, I don't think people should be able to make as much money as they want, but if they care about getting information out, if they care about conveying the truth and so on, it's really off-putting to constantly be told to buy gold now and survival supplies uh, and chewy dog treats and all these other things, which they, which they do to the extent that it's just such a turnoff, you want to turn off the radio. No, I'm I'm with you there, and I face the same conundrum. And then you know, I have sponsors for my show, and I try to keep it low key and make it you know this is on the listeners' terms, you know, to access and to interact yeah. with those those sponsors. But um, sp- specifically, there are some who who really push it hard. You you brought out a couple of them, Hannity and Beck. Yeah, big voices. Yeah. They have plenty of reach. It's not like these guys are you know struggling to you know to stay relevant, but it's you're just buried in in commercial yeah. content. And, and, you know, I actually would enjoy sitting down with those guys to try to pick their brains and understand why they do it, because both of those guys, and there are some other ones as well, but we can talk about them specifically. They're multimillionaires. They're established. They don't need to continue to, to just rake in every cent that they can possibly rake in. If you care about the message at this point, why not just figure out a way to continue doing what you're doing without being so mercenary about it? Why do they have to read commercials? I mean, if I'm Glenn Beck, I'm a multi-multi-millionaire. And they come to me and say, you know, we want you to personally read this product pitch and pretend that you love our product. No, I'm not going to do it. It's fine to have them advertise on the show. Hey, you know, here's a word from our sponsor. I don't have a problem with that. But I'm not going to do that. You know, they're not even under the pressure that somebody who's young and coming up in the profession is under where, you know, they're told by their boss, this is what you got to do. And, you know, if you don't do it, you're not going to have a job. Those guys have job security. And it's a shame that they're using the platform that they have to just basically shill and hawk things all the time. Well, and something you point out, and, and I again, this this really spoke to me. When someone is spending as much time shilling as they are, you know, trying to speak truth, you have to wonder if uh, the truth that they're speaking is in some way related to whatever it is that they're yeah. shilling. Yeah, do you remember the comedian Bill Hicks? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I, I incorporated some stuff from him into that article, including a, a really uh, obnoxious but, but hard-hitting video. And what he said was that, you know, everything you say is compromised when you start hawking products like that. And he's right. You know, you and I can remember when there was a clear line between what we called editorial uh, and advertising. You know, you didn't have ads embedded. This is back in the print media days when I was coming up. You didn't have ads as part of the story. They were on the same page, maybe, and that was fine but not within the story. If you read a car review, the car review didn't tell you to go, hey, go visit such and such a dealer. There might have been an ad for the dealer on the same page. But that line was important because it let readers have, have confidence that what they were reading wasn't a sales pitch. Yep. I mean, Paul Harvey, I got to give the guy credit. He could seamlessly be telling his story and suddenly I realized, oh my gosh, this guy is trying to sell me a Buick Skylark rather than just telling yeah. me about the trip that he and Angel took, you know, yeah. to such and such. But... Yeah. I, you know, you, you contrast Hannity and, and Beck, among others, with uh, someone like uh, Thomas Paine, or for that matter, Joe Rogan, yeah. who's kind of a modern-day Thomas right. Paine. And, and Joe yeah. Rogan doesn't clutter his time up, you know, hawking, you know, buy gold, buy f- survival food, and so forth. Yeah, and that proves that it can be done. Now, you know, Paine, uh, you know, the guy was practically a saint, in my opinion, because he gave away common sense. He refused any copyright on it. He gave it away for free, and it was the best-selling pamphlet of the time in colonial America could have made him a very rich man, but he felt that his ideas and what he was trying to convey to people was more important than making money. He ended up dying in poverty, actually. 
Um, Rogan, on the other hand, makes a really good living, and he does it without constantly trying to sell things. Of course, he has sponsors, but it's not part of his show. And I think that proves that it's absolutely possible to do what Becker Hannity does without making it primarily all about selling stuff to people as opposed to conveying ideas to people. I would dare say, I mean, I don't, I, I haven't crunched the numbers, but I'm, I'm guessing that uh, Rogan's audience dwarfs both uh, Hannity and Beck. I, I wouldn't doubt that it does. And I think that that's a function of the fact that people trust the guy. You know, he seems like a really forthright, honest guy. He doesn't pretend to have all the answers, but he's not trying to deceive you. He's not trying to sell you something. He's just having conversations with people who do know something. And, you know, people enjoy listening to that. I do. And I think that really resonates. You know, I emulate that. I try to do that. I, I make a real point about not including ad pitches in what I write about and what I speak about. Of course, I've got sponsors on EP Autos, too. But I want people to know that I'm not being paid to write a car review or paid to write uh, an opinion piece. These are just what my thoughts are for what they're worth. And if you're interested in, in them, great. Let's talk about it. And that's the end of the story. It's curious to me how, you know, you'll hear the term grifter thrown around. It's like it's like a cuss word. And invariably, the people who use that word the most are people who are statist in their thinking. And it's yep. always directed against anybody who's speaking a message involving personal freedom or limited government yep. or anything like that. You know, well, you're just a grifter. You're out there grifting, grifting. They never stop to apply that term to those who work for the one entity that really doesn't create any wealth, but only confiscates it under threat of force from people who produce it. That's true. And also, I would add, I think that, you know, I'm people on our side of the fence who are trying to present uh, views that are contra the establishment, who are being attacked by the, the left and the collectivists and the authoritarians for doing so, have to be extraordinarily meticulous in not uh, giving them any ammunition to portray us as being compromised, you know, as by money, for example. Yep. I think that's crucially and critically important. I try to do that, and I know you try to do that, and I know a lot of other guys in our business to do that, too. Well, if, if uh, lack of wealth is proof of not being compromised, I'm telling you, I'm a shining example. <laughs> <laughs> Amen, brother. Now, on, on a similar note, thanks to the Twitter files, among other things, we are learning that um, there, there were a number of celebrities and other influencers who were paid money to go yeah. out and shill for the COVID narrative. In fact, I think I just saw a tweet this last week. Uh, Pink, the singer, uh, was noted yeah. as she is a paid influencer or a paid um, promoter of Pfizer. Mm -hmm. Talk about compromise. It's beyond deplorable, isn't it? Oh, it's ridiculous. You know, these people, these people are already extraordinarily affluent, and yet they just got to get another buck, don't they? And they have to do it by hawking something that's questionable uh, and trying to, trying to, manipulate people into, into doing something. It's, it's far worse, in my opinion, than hawking a Buick. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a Buick. You know, hey, it's a car. If you like it, great. If you don't, you don't. We're talking about drugs. We're talking about pushing drugs. And that's what these people were being paid to do. And it's contemptible. It's despicable. And we should never forget what they've done. It, I seriously wonder if, you know, the, the contract, okay, here's the contract of how you're going to do this. I wonder if they had to sign it in blood. Because <laughs> it really strikes me. Is that, well, that Yeah, while they're guzzling a glass of a... Yeah, while they're guzzling a gallon of adrenochrome, probably true, too. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, I, I've been visiting my mom quite a bit. She is uh, an octogenarian. She's coming up on 88 here in the next few mm -hmm. days. Wow. She, I, she watches the evening news, meaning like the CBS evening news. And so I sat down with her the other night and, and caught probably 20 minutes of news. Not only was there a commercial break every Three minutes, I swear, it was just boom, another break. But every Brought spot, to you by Pfizer. Every spot was a pharmaceutical. 
It was unreal. Yes. It, there's a great compilation video. I'll have to send it to you. When we get off here, I'll, I'll find it and send it to you. That shows that. It's like a, a compilation of all of these news programs uh, interspersed with their, you know, their own declaimers. Sponsored by Pfizer. Sponsored by Pfizer. Sponsored by Pfizer. And it's all of them. Yeah, small wonder that they're singing the tune that, no, 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 everything is great. Get the jab, you know. Okay. <laughs> wow. It, isn't it, it's, it's incredible. And by the way, uh, you know, I come from a family of doctors, and there was a time when it was illegal to advertise drugs on mass media. Wow. I'm, I long for those good old days. Eric, mm-hmm. thanks so much for, uh, for being a voice of reason. Great to talk with you once again. Likewise, fine. Look forward to our next one. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being part of our growing audience of truth seekers, wrong thinkers, and just all around good people. I trust that, uh, you know, you're one of those people for whom... You know, it's, it's less a matter of, uh, you know, I'm going to build a monument to myself and more a matter of my life is going to be defined by how good of a person I am. Seems like we just celebrated a day recently about a guy said something about not the color of your skin, but the content of your character. Anybody remember that? Okay, I sorry, I got kind of lost in some of the political grandstanding and, you know, it, it seems like the, the message has been diluted down over the years, but I think the basic concept was actually really sound. What kind of person are you anyway, right? And if you're not sure, well, there's, you know, cause for introspection. And I guess the point here is all of us can do better. But uh, I'll tell you, my, my whole outlook on the world has changed ever since I started to value impact more than fame and fortune. Because fame and fortune are, are things that are they're good. I mean, I, I don't begrudge anybody who's got that fame and fortune. I, I think about, you know, the, my conversation, you know, with, with Eric, you know, talking about that mercenaryism. Um, fame and fortune can, can open doors and it can do some really amazing things, but those things are fleeting. And, you know, it's, it's not uncommon. People who've had great fortunes have lost those great fortunes. People who were famous, suddenly they're not famous anymore. They're greeting people at a casino or whatever. But impact, someone who changed your life or helped you to change your life or inspired you to change your life, that's the kind of stuff that lasts long term. In fact, if I could be so bold, I'm going to suggest that's the kind of stuff that actually even follows us beyond this life. So with that, uh, with that great metaphysical insight, let's, let's move on. Can you sense the shift in the attitude of the ruling class? Now, You don't have to immerse yourself in media coverage and, you know, get that fear supplement every day. But you can definitely see that uh, the the ruling class, they're skittish right now. They're frightened, and maybe it's with good cause. Got a great article here from James Howard Kunstler, who notes the glug-glug-gurgle-gurgle sounds that may indicate that our ship of state is in trouble. He starts with a quote from Edmund Burke. When bad men combine, good, the good, rather, must associate else they will fall one by one an unpitied sacrifice in a contemptible struggle. Boy, those words mean more to me than I ever thought. I mean, they make sense. They make sense when he said them, you know, nearly 200 some years ago. They make sense today. 
So James Howard Kunstler says, you thought the Titanic sinking was an astounding spectacle. Looks like the ship of the deep state got some holes ripped in its hull and may be fixing to go down sometime in 2023. In fact, he says the fun and games about voting for the Speaker of the House are over. Time to get down to business and compel some folks to do some splaining under oath. Now, you don't know for sure who will chair what exactly what congressional committee, but there will be several of them running investigations at the same time, looking to shake out some verifiable truth from the dumpster of misrule, sedition, and perfidy that America fell into in the past decade. So, Kunstler says, here are a bunch of my top outlines for inquiries. He starts with COVID-19. Forget about Fauci for the moment. First, subpoena the various deputies working under him, going back as far as the 20th century, and see what they know about the twisted path that gain-of-function research on coronaviruses traveled from the DOD's DARPA to the labs of Dr. Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina, to labs in Canada, Ukraine, and finally to Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. Then put Fauci's butt in the witness chair and ring out the splainin'. Ask about the patents on the various parts of C-19 and on the mRNA vaccines cooked up to fight it and who got the royalties emanating from all of that. Ask him how and why he continued gain-of-function research post-2014 after the White House directed it to stop. Ask him to explain his relations with one Peter Daszak of the EcoHealth Alliance. Ask Deborah Burks to explain exactly what was going on in that White House C-19 task force. Why did the public health officers demonize early treatments with known safe drugs and censor anyone who spoke out against their insane policies? What did the task force know about Pfizer and Moderna's vaccine trials? Ask Rochelle Walensky, how come she and the CDC kept pushing mRNA shots and boosters long after a broad array of injuries and deaths presented from their use? He says, put Bill Gates' butt in the chair and have him explain the labyrinth of funding mechanisms he set up to push vaccines all over the globe and how his tentacles happened to penetrate into the World Health Organization. Ask him if he ever had conversations with the leadership of the World Health Organization and the World Economic Forum about population reduction and methods for achieving it. Next on the list, weaponization of government. Time for FBI Director Christopher Wray to explain how he how come he sat silently in possession of the Hunter Biden laptop, stuffed as it was with deal memoranda about payoffs from Ukraine and other foreign lands, through the first impeachment of Mr. Trump in late 2019 and early 2020, from the initial House hearings into the Senate trial when said laptop was full of exculpatory evidence. Brady material, proving that Mr. Trump had good reason to inquire about those matters in a phone call with V. Zelensky. Ask Mr. Ray what he knows about the roles of whistleblower or CIA agent Eric Ciaramella and Intel Agency Inspector General Michael Atkinson and their relationships with the with former House Intel Committee Chair Adam Schiff. Ask Mr. Ray how many federal agents were involved in the January 6th riot at the Capitol building, both inside and outside. Ask him why one Ray Epps was never indicted for incitement captured on video. Ask him why the FBI never made a murder or manslaughter referral in the death of Ashley Babbitt. And don't let him BS the committee about ongoing investigations, blah, blah, blah. Ask Mr. Ray if he directly ordered his agents to monitor and censor social media companies. And if not him, who did? Summon the ghost of James Comey to explain the finer points of Russiagate, how he fell for Hillary Clinton's Steele dossier prank, 
how he used Columbia University law professor Daniel Richmond to leak info about confidential meetings with Mr. Trump, whether he ordered Peter Strzok's sandbagging operation on General Mike Flynn, the FISA court shenanigans, the hiring of the crowd strike instead of using FBI forensics experts to vet evidence, the run-up to Crossfire Hurricane, the roles of international men of mystery, Stephen Halper and Joseph Milf- Mifsud, rather, in the operations to incriminate Trump appointees, Nellie Orr's role as a, Trump appointees, rather, Nellie Orr's role as a DOJ-FBI go-between with the Fusion GPS company. Wow, that is one tangled web. He says, let's hear it from, let's hear from former CIA director John Brennan about the 17 intel agencies who swore Russia was behind the 2016 election interference and then about the 50-odd distinguished intel officers and other high officials who swore that Hunter Biden's laptop was a Russia put-on job. Ask former Attorney General Bill Barr to explain if he was informed about the Hunter Biden laptop when the FBI got it in 2019. Bring back former Attorney General Jeff Sessions to explain how the Mueller special counsel's office was stuffed with Democratic Party activist lawfare cadres and how he determined that Mr. Mueller was mentally up to the job. Bring in Mr. Mueller to explain how he testified that in the two-year course of his inquiry, he never heard of the company Fusion GPS. Find a special booster chair for Merrick Garland to explain how come so many January 6th suspects are being held indefinitely pre-trial in the D.C. lockup on rinky-dink charges under the harshest conditions, solitary confinement, denial of medical care, medical care, in defiance of due process of law, in particular, the constitutional right to a speedy trial. Ask Mr. Garland why he's devoting vast resources of the DOJ to pursue ever more January 6th protesters on Mickey Mouse charges. Ask him to explain how it came to pass that he went after parents protesting at school boards about indecent sex ed for little children and racist anti-white indoctrination. Ask him about sending SWAT teams on pre-dawn raids to the home of investigation targets whose lawyers volunteered to deliver them to the FBI offices. Ask him why he appointed a Russiagate-involved lawyer when Robert K. Herr as special counsel of the Joe Biden classified document matter. James Howard Kunstler says, that's just my short list of areas to begin excavations. The Biden family influence peddling operation would be fertile ground for a dedicated inquiry of a special committee. So would the adventures of Democratic Party lawfare election engineer Mark Elias, along with the election funding activities, $400 million of Mark Zuckerberg's Center for Technology and Civic Life in 2020. He says, I'm sure readers can think of a thousand other matters worth airing in the public arena. Let's see if the New York Times or the Washington Post and cable news networks actually report any of this accurately or if they just turn up the gaslight. One somewhat disconnected thought, sort of a postscript. The World Economic Forum's annual jamboree at Davos, Switzerland opens this coming Monday. Actually, it opened yesterday. Der Schwaben, der Schwaben Clause, Bill Gates and an international cast of global big mockers will be in one room for the opening plenary session all at the same time. Think about it, he says, just saying. Actually, I'm sure uh, this, this is news since this went to print. This was published yesterday. But do you know what? Uh, Bill Gates, Klaus Schwab, and George Soros, all three pulled out of that uh, plenary session. They, were, they, they abstained from going to the uh, WEF meeting yesterday. I know. My thought was, wow, something's up. <laughs> what do they know that we don't? I got a link to this in my show notes. Check it out at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I wish I could tell you that I've just got uh, tons of happy stuff to share with you in this last segment. It's it's worthwhile stuff, I'll tell you that, but uh, as far as giving you warm fuzzies, yeah, probably not. I want to talk for a moment here about assuming that you are in some way getting yourself squared away for tougher times. And I hope that uh, I hope you are. I assume that you would not be listening to a program such as this if that wasn't at some level a priority. But if you're getting yourself squared away for tougher times, here's a piece of knowledge that should serve you well. It's an article by Milan Adams explaining why the gray man strategy of not drawing attention to yourself is something worth knowing. This was published on Lou Rockwell yesterday. And it starts with a quote that says, When you need immediate attention, overt actions reign supreme. Screaming, waving your arms for attention can be the difference between life and death. Most other moments require a little more subtlety. This is where the gray man survival theory comes in. Now, if you haven't heard of it, here's a great explanation. Milan Adams says, A lot of attention in the community of preppers and survivalists is spent on self-defense and crime and home defense, since we know from other countries that have experienced economic collapse that crime skyrockets. A term that you will hear that describes the favorite strategy of the more experienced preppers and survivalists is gray man. This describes the technique of blending into your background and becoming very unnoticeable. While the younger, more inexperienced preppers and survivalists may brag about their guns and knives and self-defense strategies, it is far wiser to avoid a conflict than to have to be in a position to figure out how to come out on top. The gray man never talks about his preps with people who are outside his immediate circle of trusted family and friends. He doesn't want to draw any attention to himself. While he may be very generous and share supplies with others when the sewage hits the fan, he will ensure that it is on his terms. The last thing he wants is a bunch of people coming to him begging, or worse yet, demanding help. The gray man isn't just employed from a strategic standpoint, but also a tactical standpoint. In everyday encounters after a crisis hits... The gray man plans to be very inconspicuous. He never wears the coolest high-priced tactical gear, as that just attracts attention from bad guys who are sure to notice and decide, hey, he's a good target for expensive stuff to rob. In his daily life, the gray man wants to wear nothing, say nothing, and do nothing that would cause anyone to remember him. This is actually a strategy employed by many salesmen who do in-home sales calls. They would never wear a button for a political candidate, as that might turn people off from the opposing party and he risks losing a sale. Nothing he wears or does or talks about should draw attention to anything but his product, service, and further the sales process. So when the salesman leaves the house, the majority of people he's visited shouldn't even remember what he was wearing. If they remember that he was wearing $500 alligator shoes, that was a distraction. So it isn't only that you don't want to wear expensive or tactical clothes in a sewage-hits-the-fan scenario where you're trying to employ the gray man persona. You don't even want to wear a jersey from a particular football team or anything but bland, unremarkable clothing. By not sticking out, whether in their lifestyle every day or in how they make a trip outside their home in a tough situation, the preppers and survivalists who employ gray man are the least likely to have to worry about getting into a sticky situation. Now, there are a lot more levels that you can explore on this. I mean, um, the, some of this is like really, you know, true worst case scenario stuff. And uh, I, I would point you to the uh, Organic Prepper. In particular, if you go back into Daisy Luther's Organic Prepper blog and look for her conversations or essays by a guy by the name of Selco, 
who survived through the uh, balkanization uh, you know the the war in bosnia he uh he has some really solid advice and i know that for some people it's like what are you saying we're we're about to experience you know the kind of thing that happened in the balkans i don't know i all i'm all i'm going to say is what happened in bosnia is proof that it can happen in a first world country it it can happen when when there's enough division when people have reached the point we just don't even talk we can't even talk with them they can't be reasoned with really crazy stuff can happen and it can happen quicker than any, anybody would think some of the lessons that he learned are extremely valuable if no if nothing else just because it would be good to have that bank of knowledge to draw from if you ever needed to know those kind of things of course now nobody's hoping for that you you understand that right but the gray man idea, very, very important. If you looked well-fed, warm, you know, well-off, you were a target. And time and enough people would be along to, you know, to wear down your defenses or wear down your ability to protect, you know, what was yours. The people who uh, were, were mostly left alone were people who lived in circumstances where it looked like there's nothing here to take. Make of that what you will, but, you know, if driving a fancy car is where you obtain your self-esteem, okay, you know, I understand how that is. I feel good when I'm driving something that looks really sweet. Absolutely. But if, say, difficult economic times were coming, if just even if, if not in difficult economic times, would you drive a fancy high-dollar vehicle into a really bad part of town, East St. Louis or something? I don't think you would, and neither would I. In fact, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to drive, you know, anything that was, that was going to stand out. I'd want to just, you know, blend in as best as possible. That's the gray man idea. You're so unremarkable that nobody even gave a second thought. You know, maybe it was a Ford Fusion or it's something, you know, just, it blends in. Nothing that looks, you know, crazy, you know, stand out. Wow, check that out. I know this sounds nuts to some people. I get it. It's you know, like, dude, that is so paranoid. But I think there's great wisdom in understanding the gray man concept and knowing how to put it to use. Time to get started on it is now. So you're good at it if that need ever arises. All right, here is something that is a little more uplifting. Well, assuming you're not vegan. (laughs) If you are vegan, this is not going to be terribly uplifting to you. Most of the solutions to our needs can be met locally if we're willing to work and coordinate with others. Got a great article here. This is from the Brownstone Institute, brownstone.org. Christine Black writes about what a local alternative is really like. And she gives this firsthand account of what it's like to butcher a steer with the help of friends and, you know, something that they had to plan on and how they went about it. And I mean, she goes into some detail. She doesn't try to be gratuitously, you know, graphic, but it's a, it's, it's a, it's a bloody hands-on, you know, kind of could be kind of gross process for people. If, if you're not familiar with, you know, how an animal gets from, you know, the, the pasture or the pen to, you know, the supermarket shelf, very worthwhile to understand this. I got kind of a firsthand experience in this the, uh, just a few years ago. I had a friend who raised some pigs. And when he told me he was going to be butchering one of his pigs, I asked him, can I help you with this? Just because I want to see how it's done. I want to see what it takes 
to take this pig from a big 300-pound, you know, living, breathing, grunting, you know, animal into what's going into his freezer. And uh, let's just say it was a pretty educational day. It was cold. Oh, man, coldest, windiest day of the year at that point. But uh, we, we figured out, uh, you know, a, hu- a nice, humane way to put the pig down. We had a retractable forklift to help lift the animal and put it into a tub of scalding water to help get the, the hair off of the skin. By the way, that is way more work than I thought it was going to be. But, you know, we were all kind of amateurs just trying to figure out uh, what to do. We got that pig uh, and uh, hung it up and we managed to butcher it. And I'm not going to say we did a great job. We did okay, but it sure makes you appreciate the people who have the skill to do meat cutting. And, and in particular, I thought this was awesome. His neighbors, and he had a, a number of, uh, of neighbors uh, from Mexico who had uh, a lot of experience, apparently, in butchering pigs. And we were doing okay, but they were thinking, you know, what do we do with the skin? What do we do with this? What do we do with that? These guys came over after we had the animal, you know, cut in half and, and hanging and Holy cow, those guys, they knew exactly what to do. They they did not waste a thing. It was really impressive. And they were kind enough, you know, to show this is this is how you take care of this. This is what you can do with the skin and everything. And I, again, I, I sorry for anybody who's vegetarian or vegan or otherwise just, you know, can't handle the idea of knowing how meat gets on the plate. But at some level, I think we would all be better off to be more connected to how our food gets to our plate. Whether it's, you know, the, the meat that you're going to be eating, whether it's the plants and, and vegetables and fruits that you're eating. There's such a huge disconnect right now, and it's, and it's still convenient. Even though there have been some supply chain disruptions in the last few years, and we've, we've seen a couple of shortages here and there, uh, so many people really don't understand what it takes to grow and can and preserve your own food. And if you ever are in a position where that becomes a necessity, that learning curve is going to be super steep. Maybe it's a good idea to get on it sooner than later. If nothing else, you'll appreciate the people who make your food available in this time of plenty. And certainly if there's a time where there's not plenty, those are skills I think you'll be glad to have. This is The Brian Hyde Show.